Welcome to episode 167 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Lovin. Today we caught up with Payam Rajabi. He's a designer at Shopify in town for the week from Vancouver. We got to chat with him about design systems, remote work, content, and form. Super fun conversation, of course, getting to learn about his background as well. Before we get into that, though, we want to thank our sponsor for making this episode possible. That sponsor, you know him, we love him, bueno. And now you love them. Wayno is an agency doing work out of New York, San Francisco, and Reykjavik, Iceland. They are an agency building software and websites and products for humans. They work with companies like Airbnb and Boosted Boards and Dropbox. Uh, They just did a beautiful design for Zero. They called me an idiot on Twitter. (laughs) They're a fun group of people on the internet. Uh, They're sponsoring the show because they just want you to check them out. They have an awesome website full of case studies if you want to learn about how to present work, how to talk about your work, how to showcase it in an inspirational way. Uh, Their dribble is gorgeous. Their Instagram, beautiful. Their Twitter, hilarious, and they make fun of Bryn. Uh, You should just check them out. The main thing is go to wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. You can read through their case studies. Of course, if you're looking for work, they're hiring. You can click the careers link in their header. Of course, tell them we sent you. Otherwise, check the show notes. We'll have links to their Twitter, Instagram, Dribbble, Go follow their work, get inspired, hit them up on Twitter. They're an awesome bunch of people that we love hanging out with and you should uh, say hi as well. So thanks again so much to Wayno for making this episode possible. Once again, check them out at wayno.co. Thank you once again to Wayno. Now let's get into episode 167 with Payam Rajabi. Hi, I'm Payam Rajabi and I'm a software designer currently working at Shopify. Cool. What are you working on? Um, right now, a mix of design systems and um, parts of the product that uh, sort of help our merchants manage their day-to-day orders and fulfilling orders. Basically, everything between when their customers purchase something and when it gets into their hands. Right. So you're working in Canada. I am working in uh, Vancouver, BC. In Canada. But not at, yeah. not at the Shopify HQ. N- not at the Shopify HQ. I mean, we're a pretty distributed company. The, the main headquarters is in... Um, in Ottawa, Ontario, but we have a pretty big office in Toronto as well, um, as well as Montreal and Waterloo. Yeah. And we even have an SF office um, now. We purchased Kit, or we we acquired Kit, and um, so now we're like, a, you know, in in Fide. What's Kit? Um, to be honest, I don't have like the <laughs> perfect uh, the perfect explanation for it, but, but we have an office. Um, <laughs> I, I had a bit of a hard time understanding it myself when I saw the press release. Honestly, there there's so many different things happening at Shopify um, that I kind of just have to put my head down and like focus on sure, certain areas sure. more. But um, from what I understand, like they do a lot of AI work. Yeah. Um, I'm probably not the best person to like be a representative for, for, for all aspects of it. <laughs> okay. I just like really focus on my areas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. But they're cool. I, I met I met some of them. I've been working out of their office for like a little bit um, while I've been here. Yeah. So we're getting to chat with you because you are in town for a week. Yeah. Yeah. A week and a half. About a week. Cool. Um, we should start at the beginning. Yeah. Where are you from? Um, it's always a hard question because uh, I don't really know where home is, but um, I was born in Tehran, Iran in uh, 88. And um, you know, I was thinking about this last night because it probably come you up. You knew and, we'd ask. <laughs> yeah. And like, it doesn't really seem like the first nine years of my life were that eventful. Like I, I lived in the capital city of Iran with my parents. We lived in the same building as my grandparents. Life was pretty like uneventful. Went to school until grade three. Um and uh, when I was when I was nine, uh, we immigrated to Canada to uh, the GTA, like around Toronto. GTA is Greater Toronto Area, exactly. Not yeah. Grand Theft Auto. Not Grand Theft Auto. Got it. Yeah, so I, I lived um, in that area. Uh, went to high school and kind of got into. I forgot what came first, but like, you know, my dad bought our uh, first digital camera in two thousand and three. Um, got really into photography. I had just discovered like coming from a world where we, I'd only use like PCs. I just discovered Apple in like the early two thousands. Um, and like my world was just blown away. Right. I've, I've never really had a religion in my life, but this was like, <laughs> this was like a, a, something that I believed in, like in a weird way. So yeah, I just like got really, really interested in it. And at the time we couldn't find Apple computers anywhere. There, there, there were no Apple stores. Um, yeah, there was all third-party resellers. Yeah, it was like all, all these third-party resellers, and 
you know, I was kind of in the suburbs, which didn't have any of these nice stores. So like mm-hmm. w- once in a while, I would ask my parents when I was like in middle school to drive me to downtown so we could go and like look at some Macs. Yeah. And, uh, but I couldn't afford it. It was, you know, my parents like didn't really get it at the time, uh, why you would spend more money on a, on a different computer. But I, I, I kind of got it, right? There was this thing that was intangible, like design, whatever it was, that just made things like 100x better just by thinking about a problem differently. And so that's kind of when I started getting into it. And I just found every opportunity to get my hands on a Mac, get my hands on um, like software, like music editing software, like Ableton and Logic or film editing software like Final Cut. And, uh, you know, GarageBand came out later, which made it even easier to make music. And and then like a little bit later on, the one class in my high school that had um, Macs instead of PCs was uh, this program called Flexography. So uh, we operated printing presses, but we did the whole full stack printing so you would you would go from uh, creating your graphics to uh-huh. printing a negative uh, multiple negatives if it was a multicolor image um, exposing uh, photopolymer plates under uv light um, and then washing away the uh, the areas that weren't cured with light wrapping them around cylinders putting in presses curing uh, or doctoring the the color cylinders perfectly and like registering which means aligning uh, different layers of color together and getting this this printout. And so the only reason I took this class, I had no interest in graphics at the time. Mm-hmm. The only reason I took this class was because I wanted to play with these. Um, I think they had Power Mac G4s back then. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like the least fun part of that process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, software for commercial printing sucks. <laughs> well, it wasn't software for commercial printing. It was just um, the only part of it that was software was like Illustrator. Mm-hmm. And then you, the rest of it was all manual, like handheld mm-hmm. stuff, right? So... Yeah, I took that class. I got really into it. Uh, I got like a whole scholarship to go to this uh, printing press university. Well, it was it was Ryerson's print management program. Um, and then, like right near the end of it, I just decided like I don't think print's gonna live forever. Like I, I think I think I'm. This is like <laughs> what? <laughs> wait, wait. Well, or or I, I realized that breaking was, news. I thought print was gonna change. Um, and so like. And I didn't think it was it was the most creative kind of work. Um, uh, you know, it was it was managing like printing press companies, mm-hmm. not creating the yeah. the content. So instead, I went into graphic design. I went to the York and Sheridan School of Design, um, which is a joint program uh, in, around the GTA between Sheridan College and York University. And um, you know, it was all the traditional uh, kind of stuff you learn in design school, like type theory and a lot of history, a lot of um, composition principles around design a little bit of interactive design uh but we were like doing super experimental stuff with like processing um which is like software language arduino really really cool program didn't really set you up practically but i i did all that on the side anyway so it was really nice to get a lot of the like theory and history but as i kind of got closer to graduation i was talking to all my friends that were a few years ahead and at the time in toronto like there wasn't really that great of a product uh, design scene or startup mm-hmm. scene. There were a couple like uh, Jet Cooper, Dion and Lax um, that were doing like partly product stuff, but I wasn't going to get into any of those like right out of school. They were like, they had really senior people. And so- Did you try? I tried, but not very hard. Um, Why? Like just fear of rejection or like you- um, I, I wasn't very connected. Like I didn't really have have that many people and like, you know, I actually talked to the guys from Jack Cooper in the early days, but to be honest, like they were kind of looking to start slow, maybe with a couple of projects and, you know, see if this could be a full-time thing. I had like a ton of student debt at the time and I just could not, like I, it was like a Huge ball risk. and chain yeah. uh, and I just wanted to be liberated from this, this debt. So at the time I had a couple of friends that were working at RIM, uh, makers of BlackBerry yeah. and, um, they they made me an offer to go and work there and it was like a much higher salary and they had hired some of the best product designers in uh, in Canada at the time uh, to to work there so I just felt like it would be a better place to like learn a ton from people of different disciplines. When how, how and when did that shift happen from like high school working on print thinking you were going to go into print to right, right. now uh, software product design? Yeah, so um, I guess like. When I was saying, I was talking to a lot of my friends that were working post-grad, they were working at agencies and they had like the sickest portfolios, but hated their lives. And they were, they were changing companies every, you know, five to six months, like under, under a year. And 
I just had this deep gut feeling that working for clients, working in an agency for like, you know, to help sell Coke or sell Tide or whatever mm -hmm. was not going to be intrinsically satisfying. And I wanted to be working in a deeply integrated team with people of different disciplines, you know, engineers, product managers, um, researchers, just a whole bunch of people coming together to put their heads together to solve a problem. And at the time, RIM was the best option that I had to do this kind of thing because they were working on like only product. They weren't doing this kind of part-time agency, part-time product. They were just working on product. So it was, it was really cool. Also, I knew at the time that, you know, RIM was kind of getting their ass handed to them by Google and, and Apple. So what year is this for context? Uh, this is 2011, like early 2011. Ah, yes, they were. Yes. So I kind of just went in like looking to make it a uh, like a learning experience. Um, I was on contract and as my contract was ending the six month contract, um, the company just tanked. Like they laid off 2,500 people and, you know, needless to say my contract didn't get extended. And, uh, so for a while I just kind of puttered around. I worked on a couple of ideas for like photo editing, uh, apps that I, I was really passionate about, but you know, I had no engineering knowledge at this time. I was just kind of, you know, prototyping stuff in the tools that I knew, which were, uh, Photoshop Illustrator and After Effects. And I was making these videos and I was going to tech meetups and showing these to engineers on my iPad and be like, look at this. Isn't this cool? Do you want to help me build this? <laughs> look like, what I can do. Yeah. Well, and, and it just like, it didn't really, I, I wasn't thinking about, I, I didn't really know how to think about like business models or how to think about utilizing technologies, at least like not in the way that I, not to the extent that I should have been if I was asking an engineer to leave their job to start a company with me. So um, <laughs> what did they say to you? Oh, they thought it was fun, but like they just never really took me that seriously. I, 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 and I Did met they a give you hard feedback? Uh, they didn't want an idea, man. No, I mean it wasn't just I, I. I'd gone into a lot of detail, but like I was also just like a fresh grad, and um, a lot of them really helped me a lot. They they connected me with different people that mm. kind of became mentors for periods of time. But I also just like was more interested in playing around. I, I don't know. I, I don't exactly know. Uh, uh, how that ended other than the fact that because I kind of had rim on my resume, uh, some companies from the Valley started reaching out in, in later that year. And I kind of came out here just purely for the opportunity of being able to be in the Bay area. Like I, I literally mm -hmm. never been West of Ontario and I'd, I'd idolized like Apple and later on like Facebook and Twitter and all these little startups around them that were doing really like culture shifting, amazing work. Yet I'd never actually allowed myself to like take a trip out here and like watch a Steve Jobs keynote or like go and meet some of these, these, um, these people in these companies. But I was like watching every talk, listening to every podcast or uh, interview that I could get my hands on talking to like startup founders and, um, you know, software designers and, and, and programmers. So I just kind of came out here for shits and giggles. At this time, I was also like a year and a half into like this wonderful relationship with my partner, Claire. Um, and I wasn't really thinking about leaving, especially because she was going back to school and I didn't want to be away from her. Uh, she was going to be in Ontario. So I came out here, did my interview, kind of went and explored the city the next day, came back to my hostel and I got the news that Steve had passed away. Yeah. And it was like extremely saddening. And it's like four days ago, five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I called Claire and kind of told her I, I feel really regretful that I wasn't here earlier. And I feel like this is kind of a sign that I, I need to be here for just a little while. And uh, the company that I was interviewing with the next day, they they made they, they made me an offer and they said, you know, and I was, I was kind of hesitant. And they just said, come come out here for a year. If you don't like it, you can leave. Just come out here for a year. So I was like, all right. You know, Claire and I talked. We decided we were going to do long distance for a little while and each pursue our own dreams. Um, so I came out here uh, in late 2011 and like everything changed afterwards. I met some of the most amazing people. I, I have the highest concentration of like really close friends in this area. Some of my best collaborators are here. Um, I really like found my identity. I, I was able to be, be the most honest uh, version of myself here. Why is uh, that? Like why, why the most honest version of yourself? Um, like I, I never really felt like I fit in. I, mm -hmm. I, I never really had to be apologetic for being obsessed with like, you know, no one understood why I bought the first iPod with like two years of my savings and no one understood why I was like really into photography and keep in mind, this is pre Facebook, right? So I'm carrying around a camera and taking 
portraits portraits of people and they were like yelling paparazzi at me because they didn't really understand like why someone would take photos um, aside from just being a creep. And then like a year later, I was getting paid for it (laughs) as as like a a part-time gig. (laughs) Show you. Right? Actual paparazzi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But like, you know, it it was just a a weird time. People didn't really get me. I didn't really find a lot of other people that uh, could level with me. And then I came here and a lot of my friends are California natives, but a lot of them are transplants. But we all kind of came here for the same reason, which was to... Mm -hmm kind of pursue an opportunity to work with really great people and solve these really big problems. Um, and I found exactly that. And also like, I didn't need to feel judged about what kind of clothes I wore or what kind of shoes I wore or- Easy to just wear all black. Yeah, most, mostly. <laughs> I mean, my, my setup was like yoga pants and, and like whatever startup hoodie um, and t-shirt. <laughs> you blend right fun. in there. Yeah, yeah, it was like a chameleon. Grew my hair long for the first time in my life. Uh-huh. Like I'd never really felt. Yeah, your photos online, you don't look anything like you do right now. I've, I've had like a few peaks and troughs. Like at a certain point, I chopped my, all my hair off. And then I, I realized that keeping a barber cut maintained every day is harder than just having long hair. So yeah. I'm, I'm back. I'm back <laughs> it's to more it. out of laziness. Yeah, exactly. Do you uh, consider yourself an extrovert or an introvert? It's funny because like I thought a lot of people that meet me think of me as an extrovert mm-hmm. um but i was always considered like more of an introvert when i was in high school i was definitely a quiet kid in high school but i definitely feel like i've come out of my shell here specifically yeah totally i mean i i got like bullied a lot throughout throughout really um yeah i mean like i, I wouldn't mess with you man <laughs> appreciate that we would probably would have been friends um, <laughs> <laughs> but like you know i was I, I moved here when i was nine and i didn't speak a word of english mm. and um I got teased a lot for that. I got teased a lot for coming from a country that had a very different culture than than North America. So I, I didn't just like fit in. And I think the thing that annoyed people was like, I wasn't even trying to fit in. I just was like, do my own thing. And and so I was just the easy target. But later on in life, like later, later in high school, university, and, and in my professional life, like I've been met with nothing but love and acceptance for who I really want to be. So I feel like that's kind of like you were saying, Bryn, like, it's it's opened me up a lot, but yeah, I don't I don't know if there's like that clear of a distinction between yeah. uh, one or another. The reason I ask is because I remember when I first moved here, it took me a while to find the people that I connected the most with, mm-hmm. and honestly, like a lot of it happened through Bryn. Like as soon as I met Bryn, Bryn is definitely more extroverted and introduced me to people. Mm-hmm. But I had a hard time doing that by myself. So I'm curious how you approach that coming from like born in a different continent, but raised like going through high school and college in a different country. And then you come to SF, you're away from your partner. Like, how did you even find yourself being able to, to connect with these people in that honest and open and like being you way? I think a part of it was I had a chance to actually, um, redefine who I was just like how I had an opportunity to redefine who I was when I went away from high school and into university. So at every stage, when you go to a new place, um, People don't really know you. They don't have mm-hmm. their their sort of prior uh, assumptions about who they think you are. So you're able to just be yourself. So that's that's just what I did, and and I was just very like I just I just went for it. I met some of my closest friends who are still my closest friends in in that first startup that I worked at, and it was just through being like, hey, I, I don't have anything to do tonight. What are you doing? Let's go. Let's go do something. Yeah. Um, you know, some of my best memories are just like meeting up with you know friends in Dolores Park and like grabbing a coffee and going for a hike up one of the hills yeah. and, and just talking, you know, and, and it, it felt really effortless. So I, I don't really know. It just kind of happened naturally because I, I wanted it to happen. So the company asked you to stay a year and just try it out. What happened after a year? I kind of realized when I was going in that this wasn't necessarily going to be my calling in life, but the group of people this being, uh, this is a company called reputation.com. Okay terrible name ah, so um, the company itself was yeah like yeah calling. yeah oh i mean yeah like their their thing was like around um helping you manage your online privacy and identity and you know they had a they had a business your model. personal brand if you will sort of so it's sort like of. a precursor to clout or something they were like kind of doing some of the same kinds of things as clout except they weren't trying to score um, what you were, uh, you know, they weren't trying to give you a score. They were just trying to rookie move. Gamification was all the rage then. (laughs) That's true. Well, it's, it's funny. I was talking about this recently and I feel like the real, the real problem was that we were trying to uh, go against the grain and like hide all the uh, things about you. You didn't want people to see where we should have just made like Snapchat where you 
you have a, a platform that lets you share things more privately to begin with. We, we, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, buddy. We all should have been just making Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, or something like it. I just yeah. I feel like at the time, um, everyone like was interested in content being mm-hmm. online, but then some photo of you would pop up uh, pop up in Facebook that you didn't want people to see. Or anyway, it it was it was fine. It was a it was a really good group of people. But I, you know, six months in, I was already looking for the next thing. Um, I also felt like I wasn't really, I was a, I was a decent designer, um, like visual interaction designer, but I wasn't, and that's what we called it back then. I wouldn't call that that now, but I felt like I needed to have a deeper understanding of this medium that I was working within. Like I wanted sure. to have a deeper understanding of uh, computer science and human computer interaction and ethnography. And those aren't things designers need to worry about. You just worry about making the pixels pretty. <laughs> good. Yeah. I mean, your response <laughs> <laughs> should designers code. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this for the next time. No. <laughs> but you know, I, I felt like I needed to learn some, um, uh, ex- expand my, my breadth of like knowledge and, I was like, oh, maybe I could just audit a class at Stanford or Berkeley and, and learn a thing or two. And one of my friends sent me a link to a human-computer interaction course by this little startup called Coursera. And I took it, like loved it, um, by uh, Scott Klemmer. He was a professor at um, Stanford. And I just felt like, shit, this is it. Like this, I don't want to be done with university after four years and feel like I'm done learning for the rest of my life. Like I want to continue learning. And the company's mission just spoke to me so, so deeply that through a series of, you know, lucky uh, introductions and, and people that I knew, I, I ended up interviewing there, ended up uh, getting an offer, joined, it's like the 20th person, their second designer. And um, it was just like a wild ride, right? I saw everything that you see from being in a small startup to being, by the time I left, we were over 200 people. So yeah, just, and again, like just constant growth, right? Like that that next stage taught me so much about working with people. And the thing I really loved about it, uh, the thing that I'll always give Coursera credit for is that everyone who was there was genuinely there because they believed in the mission and they wanted to do good in the world. And so we had a really great way of just putting our egos aside and not caring about our immediate portfolios or you know what kind of uh, thing you would open source on GitHub. And you would just focus on solving this problem of bringing the world's best education to everyone. So I was there for as long as I could possibly be there. But at a certain point, you know, I was just really long, tired of doing long distance. And, and so was Claire. Yeah. And she was now graduating and um, she wasn't going to be able to come and visit me in California every, uh, every other month um, or like stay the, the whole summer. So basically, uh, oh, and she also wasn't going to be able to work in the States because her degree, uh, midwifery, Midwifery is very different. Uh, for those who don't know, it's uh, a childbirth um, in Canada. It's a uh, you know four four year degree. It's a uh, it's a um, sort of medical program. It's really more like a master's, um, uh, but in in America, it's treated a little bit differently. It's treated like alternative medicine. Uh, yeah, uh, or or it's like it's either like alternative medicine where you can only do home birth, mm-hmm. or it's um, very hospitalized. And the way that the rest of the world practices uh, delivering babies is that pregnant women aren't um, uh, ill. They're not, they're not sick. So um, they just need to deliver their babies. So uh, she wasn't going to be able to work here. And even if she did work here, that wasn't going to be the, the right way for her to practice yeah. her role, just like how I didn't want to work in agencies. And I really respected that about her. And uh, that's, that's one of the things I loved about her. So I ended up deciding to move back. And for, you know, so I moved back and, early 2015. And for about six months, I just kind of like lived off my savings. We traveled everywhere and just took a lot of time to process everything that had happened. I questioned even the very idea of, do I want to go back and work on software? And it was really nice that by the end of it, like I realized, yes, I love this. What was the push and pull of that? I think that's very interesting. Um, The push and pull? Yeah. Like, should I keep doing software? Is this the most important thing I can be doing with my time. Well, I mean, you know, any of us who work on, on software, we, we feel the pain of like sitting down at a computer for um, like eight to 12 hours a day and staring at a screen. And like, once I moved away from that, once I didn't have to do that, I realized like, oh, I have this like, like body, body and I can <laughs> do things with it. I mean, I was already, I was already like, uh, I was, oh <laughs> I was still, um, uh, exercising, and I loved. I got really into like cycling when I was in the Bay Area, and I I wasn't 
not active, but not having to be sitting down at a desk, I, I felt like my whole world opened up and I was uh, kind of a different person. It was just a change of pace. And I, I had a lot of other interests uh, that I thought about pursuing. You can only have the one interest. That's silly. Stop doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the most expensive um, things in, in your life when you have a skill that people will, will pay you uh, a lot of money for that, like maybe you, you would really just be happier if you started a, you know, a, a nursery, like a flower nursery or something, or you, you, you know, started a little coffee shop in a small town, but um, you will get paid a lot more if you work on like selling ads better or payments or, or something like that, which are, which are all like totally legit. But if it, if it doesn't make mm-hmm. you happier, um, ultimately should, be, you know, what should we be working on? So I, I just asked myself those same, same kinds of questions that did I, did I really want to just go back and spend most of my day staring at a screen? And, you know, at the end of those six months, I was just so hungry to get back into it that I, 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 I fell in love with it. And I realized this is what I wanted despite all those other things that uh, come with it. So what did you do next? So I'd been kind of talking to a lot of the folks at Shopify. And my initial goal was to actually probably eventually go and join them in Ottawa. But I was waiting on Claire to figure out where she was going to work. The job market for midwifery is really tough because it's government funded and the government like doesn't give it enough funding. So um, it took some time. And at first I was going to go to Ottawa, but none of the clinics there had openings then we thought maybe Toronto, but then they said Toronto's not going to work because we don't do product in Toronto. But then their mind changed and they said, oh, actually, you can do product in Toronto. But by this point, I she'd already accepted a gig uh, in Vancouver. Uh-huh. So like, oh, man, that sucks. You're not going to be able to work for us. And then they called me back and they were like, actually, like, let's try to make this work. Do you want to do remote? And I was like, yes, this that would be awesome. I want to give it a try. I'd read the book Remote by 37 Signals and I wanted to at least give this a try. And yeah, so I took the offer and it was specifically to go and kind of work on building a design system and uh, helping maintain it, mm-hmm. uh, which was something that I was trying to do at Coursera, but we weren't quite at the scale where we, we weren't quite at the scale where management felt like we needed it. I think we mm-hmm. needed it since day one, but this was an opportunity to really try my hand at creating a design system that was going to be used by like 150 person UX organization. Can we slip in a definition here? How do you define design system? Like when you're saying this and this is your job, what does that mean? So I don't really have one definition for it, but there are like a few different ideas that I have about it. So you have the concept of like a UI kit, which is what we often see on like sketch app resources or something, right? That is a manifestation of your design system in the form of like a sketch file. And for the most part, they all suck because they're very like, they're just like these traced, you know, assets of of what a screen looks like but it doesn't really tell you what a certain color means or what a typeface means or what a, what a type style means or um how you use um icons and so there's there's that side of it that's more about like your your toolkit as a designer and then there's the broader system which is you know um how how the different pieces connect to each other um what the purpose is for each one and how you create a a coherent experience um for for your user and then there are there's a broader thing, which is patterns. And, and these are not specific, you know, uh, pieces of UI, but they're just design patterns that make for an overall good user experience. So a colleague of mine actually had a good example of this. Um, where like, you know, in, in architecture, a good design pattern is like people want to live in a place that gets natural light. So like in every building, there should be a plan to have places that has like a lot of natural light. Um, and in, in, Software design, you can kind of follow that um, in a similar way, which is like people like to not have to think about saving. So autosave is a good pattern, but then how do you actually, what are all the things that surround it? How do you tell the user that things are good and things are being taken care of? And how does that actually work with APIs? And, you know, aesthetically, what does that look like? How does it work on different platforms? And they don't necessarily have like a single, like, you can't necessarily have a single mock representing that pattern, but it's it's a broader thing that we all need to understand so that when you have a large organization, we can all design for different, you know, solve different problems in a coherent and harmonized way. I, you know, I wouldn't say like I'm the expert on the definition of it, but um, I don't really think anyone has a perfect definition <laughs> of it. Yeah. I, I like a lot of the the writing that Brent Jackson has been uh, doing on, on this. Oh um, man. Specifically components. Like just, I, I like read that 
once or twice a month yeah. um, just to like rejog my memory. But yeah, I think in, in general, it's like, how do you create this way of working on, how, how do you get different different people to work on something that's bigger than just one project, bigger than just themselves? And so creating the artifact of like a UI kit is nice, but the real challenge is how do you actually grow it and evolve it as the problems you're changing change, as the scope becomes far larger and more complex? How do you empower people at at every level to contribute to the system without feeling judged um, in, in a negative way or or feeling like they can't they can't contribute? It's like you don't want people to feel like this is something that's being passed down from management. And that's one of the things that I've really appreciated about Shopify that we have we have the um, we have a culture where it's very encouraged for everyone to kind of poke at the the yeah. system and question it. What did it? How did it work when they hired you to build the design system, and you come in 150 UX people at Shopify? Yeah, yeah. How do you even start? Like, how did you break down that problem? And well, they already like, like, they were already doing do uh, a really good job, like a, a better job than I'd seen most companies do. So that was one of the things that got me really excited because I felt like there's a foundation. Yeah. If, if I'm going to start doing this anywhere, it's here. Um, it wasn't like a totally broken system. I'd, I'd worked in enough like broken chaotic companies. I wanted to for once work in a well-oiled machine and make it even better. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the, one of the big things that was missing was, um, an actual like semantic definition, a rationale an understanding of what different foundational styles were about. Like, so what is the purpose of type? And then specifically, what does scale mean? What does opacity mean? What does color mean? Specifically, what does blue mean? Or what yeah. What are you trying to convey with blue? What are you trying to convey with green or red? When it comes to color, what do our colors mean? How does that tie to co type colors? You know, what what about our icons? Like what 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 do we what do we mean when we put an X? Is that like a dismiss? Is that is that you know trash? Cancel. Um, cancel. So. Um, a lot of it was just like taking the existing system and then just putting more meaning around it. And where there were discrepancies, constantly looking for discrepancies, you fix those discrepancies. So I, I spent the first few months talking to a ton of people. And in a way, my being remote was really helpful because I wasn't just biased towards one office and one set of people that I clicked with. I had to talk to everybody. What are the artifacts of that? Is it a Word document? Is it a sketch file? Is it a combination of this? Like, what is the output of a design system for you that lets you communicate all these things about color and type? And So there's so much that I want our tools to do that they're not doing. Um, but what we have right now is um, a style guide, which is a website um, with, you know, similar to material design, similar to a lot of other uh, companies uh, that, have, that have come out with a style guide that breaks things down by styles and uh, components and layouts and patterns and things like that, uh, but but specifically for Shopify, the the specific problems that we're trying to solve for for our users, um, and that's where we can really get get into the nitty gritty about the meaning behind all these things and when we use them and why, um, and then there's the sort of resources around that which are um, you know our front end development system or our, our front end development architecture um, our UI kit, which is a sketch file uh, right now. We also have like, we, we use Slack to bring up interesting problems, but more recently we've started doing uh, a once uh, or a bi-weekly actual meeting where anyone can dial in and just talk about these problems. So we have a synchronous conversation around it rather than just something that's very uh, ephemeral in, in, in Slack. Are you happy with this system of tools? Never. Yeah. No. And, and that's, um, I... I spent a lot of my time looking at tools and figuring out what could be better. And in some ways I'm really itching to like work on a design tool, but I also really like actually trying to apply, you know, I, I also really like the opportunity to put a lot of these ideas into practice in an actual product company. That's not creating a product for designers, but creating a product for people that I have to actually try to uh, empathize with, to understand, mm -hmm. which has been a really good exercise. But, you know, I think we're making progress. We've, we've seen a lot of progress in, in, in that direction. I think there are certain companies that I think are thinking about it better than others. Um, but in general, I like that it's become more of a thing that we all think about. What's become a thing that we all think about? Just like how to actually get designers to design something that's bigger than just 
one person's like project, right? Like when you're working on software, when I was in design school, you would do all your projects independently. You would, you would design, you know, for a festival and you would have your uh, business cards and pamphlets and poster. And like some people would go crazy and make like lanyards or something. Um, it, (laughs) It was just all like, you know, it was a very controlled and very yeah. rigid. And then you go to your print lab, press print, and like you have what you have. With software, you need to get so many different people, so many different expertise working together. And I think it's really important to, as, as a starting point, have a platform where your work isn't just your own. Isn't that interesting, though, that so many of our tools have all, I mean, it makes sense in the time span of software, but it started off single player, like... Mm-hmm. Um, Wow, I'm really playing into this one. But like sketches, you have your sketch files and maybe you use Dropbox to sync it with people, but then you like, you know, have conflicts and stuff. Photoshop. Yeah. Your Photoshop files. Like there's this ownership of like your project, your folder structure, your layer structure, on and on and on. Yeah, totally. I mean, the kind of problems that these tools were designed to solve were very different than the kind of problems that we have today. Yeah. You could build like an entire airport wayfinding system and like print things out and put it on a wall and you would have, you know, your design firm that's stationed in one place and they're working on it. Maybe you send like prints to another office and they look at it and they give you feedback, but the iteration cycle was slower and it was easier to hold the whole thing in your head. But, you know, now when you build a tool, you need to quickly be able to figure out how to iterate on it. You need to be able to scale it, you know, there's there's not going to be one person that's going to be able to do everything for long if you want to stay competitive. Sure. Um, so I think it's all about just figuring out how to like daisy chain your brains, not just to other designers, but also to other people uh, in your team, like engineers and product managers and researchers and content uh, strategists. So you've been thinking about this at Shopify for a year. Mm-hmm. Where are you at now with the design system? And like what what's the biggest challenge you're working on to to keep improving that, to daisy chain our brains? <laughs> I like that. To be honest, I think um, as much as I would love it if like Shopify just focused the whole team on building tools, I think it's not scalable for any company um, to, I mean, at least not any company that's not like Facebook or Google or yeah. um, Airbnb is doing some really cool work around it. But, you know, I, I think that the real opportunity is these are problems that we all share. Yeah. So I've been spending some of my kind of uh, extracurricular time talking to different uh, design tool companies and just like giving them a lot of feedback um, and hoping that they build the kind of tool that's going to solve the kind of problems that we're trying to solve. A- and also I've shifted a little bit towards doing more product work, which is really great for actually stress testing the system that we built. That seems really important, by the way. It absolutely is. To like actually have to live with the shit that you come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know if you guys have seen Objectify or no, not Objectify. You've made um, your bed, now sleep in it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Uh, so like in in the movie Urbanized um, by Gary, Gary Hustwit, the same guy who did Helvetica, yeah. they talk about um, the city of Brasilia that is like the most beautiful city that you see when you fly over it. But to actually live in that city is a nightmare because it was designed from a top-down perspective. So that's what I think a lot of like design systems and style guides and brand guidelines end up being. It's like someone who's like a brand expert and they come in and they create this PDF and they just, uh, you know, uh, they, they, here's our PDF. They just, yeah. And they just like, you know, um, disseminated amongst all the minions that are supposed to go and like execute. And there isn't enough detail. There isn't enough meaning. There's just like a palette of stuff that you can, I think this correlates to a lot of things where designers hand off to someone who's meant to implement things like, Oh yeah. Designers handing off to engineers constantly falls into this scheme i think yeah uh it's this beautiful organized system until you actually try it out and then it falls apart yeah i think it's it's a balance too like i for a while was thinking a lot about this full integration um between like designing something and like building it um in in code and like I, i kept thinking how could there be a situation where you don't have to worry about any of these problems, where you don't even have to like have a face-to-face conversation with your engineer to, to build this, like automate everything. And then I saw this talk by, I think his name is John V. Wiltshire. That sounds like a name. We can put it in the show notes. 
I'll, I'll find it somehow. Thanks, buddy. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and I saw this. I, I saw this talk, um, and he was talking about this sort of a model of thinking about how we do what we do. And he, he was talking about like sketching, scaffolding, and structuring. So sketching is what you do in a very like you know like um, freeform freeform way yeah. uh, where there's like no investment there's no structure it's just like ideas you could do it on a piece of paper you could do it in sketch um, but you're you're not really working with like the true complexities it's just all kind of these concepts that you're playing with mm-hmm. um, and and then like the next step from there um, is uh, scaffolding. So that's where you actually start giving a lot of things structure and meaning, but not not the full not to the full extent. So you don't necessarily have like a linked with a link with real APIs pulling in real data um, and taking every single permutation of events into account. Just like you know, you could think of it as a uh, as an envision prototype or a, cl- a clickable prototype to get some proof of concept, and then ultimately you structure it. And that's when you build the real thing in, in production code. And um, between every single step. I think that human interpretation is a really important thing. So it's not, I don't think there should be a seamless um, path from sketching something to building it because in between those stages, trying to figure out, okay, so cool, here's the concept, but how do we actually build it? I actually think it's a good thing to not think about every last bit of complexity when you're sketching something out because sometimes you just got to figure it out. Well, do you think sketching is the right first step? Do you think scaffolding makes more sense as a structural model? I think it depends. Um, because I tend to start with scaffolding, frankly. Well, and I think that um, depending on the kind of product that you're working on, that might make sense, especially if you're working on a product that that's already built um, and you know that it works and you're trying to make optimizations to it to make it even better. But when you're trying to create something that's never been, uh, that's never existed before, I think that, you know, going going straight into trying to structure it more is going to lock you into a specific solution. And people talk about like wireframing and, and like high fidelity prototypes. I hate that. Like, I think if you're designing something in sketch, it doesn't really matter if you're using like, you know, yeah. like comic sans and gray boxes, yeah. like you're still caring about all the details the same way you would with a quote, high fidelity prototype. Uh, high oh, no, fidelity I, mock, by yeah. scaffolding, I meant like the data model. No, no, I, I know. I guess I'm just saying there, there's like a range, but to me, like, um, it depends on the problem that you're, you're trying to solve. But yeah. um, generally when you're starting from scratch, I think, having like less less investment is is a mm. good thing but actually i'm curious like what uh how, how do you how do you work through problems when you when you start with scaffolding generally i start with a document that is like what's the problem we're trying to solve who's it for that kind of stuff and then i go into what are the pieces i think we'll need and i kind of structure that as a JSON object mm. Mm. like I, I, that's like my default model for data nice um okay. i find that a dictionary works really well for that so dictionary a uh, JSON dictionary, oh, so like key value pairs. Right. So it's funny you say that because one of the things that I've been kind of geeking out over recently is um, like designing with real content or mm-hmm. what I'm calling form follows content. So sketch data populator. Uh, that was like my favorite plugin. It it's good actually. I I met um, Christoph who's from uh, Precious. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I met him when I was in Malmo and uh, for that the same conference. Um, and I think you know, they were way ahead of the curve. They've they've had that thing for like two years. Um, Craft recently, you know, published uh, or, or you know, uh, Envision Craft recently launched the yeah. um, data plugin, which is really cool. And my favorite one actually is one that IDEO launched called um, Sketch Content Sync. It has pros and cons. The the con is that instead of like a you know a nested data model like JSON, it's mm-hmm. a flat hierarchy of a of a, a spreadsheet with just a single key value pairing. But what's cool about it is that it's um it's it syncs with the source of the content repeatedly, and you can be selective about which part of that content you want to sync with. So a lot of us, um, and I used to do this too, which is like you you put quote, real content in, but just as a placeholder to make your mocks look more realistic. What I've actually kind of changed um, my my thinking around is like, before I even sketch, I look at the, the content that I'm designing around. So in the case of Shopify's order management system, it's looking at what orders look like. Like what is the, the variety of the types of orders we get? What are all their different states? What are all the different combinations of things that can happen? And that like, what what's the nature of this mm-hmm content that you're trying to build a structure around build it build so build it. we're more or less talking about the same process yeah, yeah, yeah i was gonna yeah, say yeah. you guys are dancing around the same yeah yeah thing. totally yeah. so so I, it's just cool that you said that because i actually think 
like understanding, but I don't really consider that um, to be scaffolding as much as just understanding the content. So in graphic design, my, my professors would say, you know, if you're trying to create a, a pamphlet or a poster, like read the, read the design brief, read the actual like goal of this thing. And then understand like, if you're trying to put content in this thing, try to understand what the content's trying to say so that you can create a form around the content that is meaningful to the mm-hmm. content. And I think that far too often we design the container before we know what's going to go inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're creating like a, you know, just a, a pretty UI kit, you'll have your dropdowns and you'll have your buttons, but that, you know, software is more sophisticated than that. So just taking a button and replacing the text inside of it isn't enough. You, you have to actually understand, should it even be a button? Should it right. even be a dropdown? Uh, obviously the, the original saying is form follows function, but yeah. here you're placing it form follows content, content data model. I think um, in, I, in that seen, model, I think function comes in as part of the form, though. Do you agree? Hmm. I mean, the whole thing about form and content, form and function is like the form influences the function, right? So, I mean, this is kind of an old example, but the difference between seeing a button that had like zero pixel rounded corners versus one that had 100% rounded corners made you feel differently about it, right? Like how friendly it was. I, I, it's a really old example. I wish I had something. No, that's, <laughs> that's a great example. <laughs> but like considering Apple has no background or border or anything. Right. Like and, 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 you know, that, that, that was in a whole new like paradigm too with, with flat design, um, which had its own set of functions as a result of the form. So there isn't like a perfect uh, line between the two. It's just more about where you start. Do you start with an idea of what a profile page should look like for your user? Or do you start with what your type of user is trying to convey in their profile page? Why would they want a profile page? Why would they want a profile page? Even better. You know, ask why. Go back to to the, the root cause or the, the root problem. I did this last night. Uh, we are futzing around with some product idea and Sarah goes, like, why does this... Uh, like toggle even exist. I'm like, fuck, I don't know. I didn't even think it through. I just, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe someone would find it useful, but that's a shitty way to, <laughs> to yeah. design, right? Uh, so I've since deleted it. But well, there there are patterns that you just kind of default to, totally. even if you don't know that it makes sense for that exact yeah, thing, you, because you, you know other people, guess. other people yeah. will read it right too, right? Like other people probably have that same pattern somewhere in there, like memory files. Yeah. <laughs> it's all language, right? It's it's just the common understanding. Yeah. And I think that like back back when I started my career, um I was really trying to It's when people subvocalize, when they say like like or um, it feels like it belongs there even though it doesn't add anything. Yeah, but it's interesting because I actually feel like when I say like and um to certain demographics, I have a better conversation. When I talk to people when I exactly and I end every sentence like this with an inflection and it sounds like I'm asking a question to certain populations that are maybe a little bit older I sound like I'm unsure of what I'm saying and to other populations it actually or to, to other demographics it it feels like I'm I'm less uh you know I'm less rigid in my thinking it sounds more open and considerate yeah, yeah exactly yeah. exactly so I I find myself being a bit of a chameleon in that sense as well where I know kind of like who my audience is and a lot of the time I'm not even conscious of it, but I'm saying like some of these patterns, they feel right to a certain demo, even if it doesn't actually add any benefit. Yeah. Yeah, totally. People are hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and like, so a lot of it is your, your vernacular around this stuff. Right. So like when I, when I started my first job in the Bay area, I kept telling my boss, like, do we have, do we really have to have gradients on buttons? Why? Like we're already, we're already like, we have a button that has like a stroke around it with like a white fill. And then we have another one that's like a blue button with a gradient. But like, why is a gradient? What, what's the contrast that it's creating with a gradient? Everyone knows it's a button because it's in a square. And you don't need to make it feel like it's popping out of the page. And it's like a cylinder for people to get that it's a button. And he would just say like, no, people aren't going to get it. Like it needs to feel like you can click it. Feels, And, you know, in a lot of ways he was right. I was just like an arrogant little like <laughs> young guy. And, and that had to happen slowly and people had to learn enough of that. I, that might've been okay for me because I was like younger, but for a lot of people who mm, software wasn't in their life since they were basically born, mm-hmm. they, um, 
felt like they needed some some relationship between this thing that was on a screen and, and real life. So like skeuomorphism, basically. Yeah. Um, but eventually, we didn't need that anymore as a, as a signal. Mm-hmm. So that's how like the form kind of shifted. Mm-hmm. I'm like wandering now with this. No, this is good. <laughs> One thing uh, you mentioned earlier is that when you first started, you found it helpful to be remote because you didn't have to hone in on a specific office or specific group of people. Uh, I used to work a remote job as a designer. And I did it for two years and I had an experience of it being very, very good, but at times very, very challenging. Um, I ended up feeling quite alone at times as a designer and felt like I was missing that intimacy Mm -hmm. with the people building things that that we were working on. So I'm curious how it's going for you. Um, Like, sounds like maybe when you started, that was helpful, but like, it's been a year. How do you feel about being remote? Is that tough? Like, what are ways that that people can think about that so that maybe it's a bit more manageable? And being remote from most of the design. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned you don't have many design friends, so well, uh, in, I, not not in Vancouver. In Vancouver, yeah. um, well, that's what I meant. And it's only because <laughs> you have no friends, by the way. <laughs> it's it's only because I uh, moved there the same week that I started my job at Shopify. So, like that was last September was like the beginning of a new chapter for me. You were peak remote. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was. I I didn't have any established like friendships in Vancouver when I landed. Um, and the friends that we did have were Claire's friends from Midwifery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny because like most of my friends in SF are, are guys, like I would say 90% of them are, are, are men. And then in Vancouver, it's the other way around. So most of them are, are women and they're mostly, they mostly have no idea why I spend so much time moving boxes on a screen because they're more concerned with like a baby being breech yeah. and like having to get up at three in the morning when a woman's going into labor. So yeah, like, like delivering life into the world, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> trivial things. It's it's humbling. It's grounding, you know, yeah. to, to, to be around people that aren't going to immediately catch on to why this new like plugin you're using is super sick and babies uh, yeah <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's nice i was uh. up all night with a woman who was you know <laughs> in, in labor so to, to answer your question i think i still really love it and the reason is that i spent four years by myself here and i, I i've made great friends but at the end of the day like i just want to go back home to my partner and i want to like make dinner together and you know, have a glass of wine and watch a movie or something. And it's just, I I miss that for so long that it's, it's nice to have that um, on a daily basis. And it's nice to also pull myself away from just talking about design and technology and and talk about other things and give myself, it's it's like working out. If you're doing 500 pound squats every day, you're not, you're not going to gain. You need to give yourself time to rest for your muscle that that's torn to like, you know, uh, heal. So it, for my mind, it's a similar thing. Like not not constantly being being around this uh, kind of thinking um, has has been refreshing. Um, but also, like I just have a better quality of life. Like during my lunch break, I go and chase my dog in a park that's like five minutes away from our house. I can get right to work when I wake up in the morning. I don't have to have like a stressful commute where I feel like I'm going to get crushed by car doors that open as I'm biking. And all that is contributing to me being able to just focus on the work. You know, that being said, I also feel very fortunate to be working for a company that um, flies me around uh, to different offices when I need to be there. But I do find that with, with, your, with your colleagues, it's much more about the intellectual uh, relationships and the transfer of knowledge between your brains than having to physically be around them, um, at, least, at least less so than your family and your, mm-hmm. your partner your dog, whoever, your kids, if you have kids. So I'm very happy to be able to prioritize those relationships on a day-to-day basis um, and then spend like a really intense week of building those relationships with others that I don't get to see often. And at least when you're away and you're on like a call or a hangout and you can't make actual eye contact because you're like both looking down at a screen, you can use everything that you learned about that person over that like one coffee um, meeting or that one lunch hangout or having drinks after work. You can use all of those things you learned about that person to fill in the blanks between what they actually meant when they said that thing or, you know, you can't fully read their body language, but you understand uh, where they're coming from. So it's not perfect. I mean, I, I don't think that we've fully cracked remote work, both Shopify and myself, like we have a really high quality internet connection. We still get problems with video calls. Mm -hmm. And every time that happens, I feel like 
I'm less real and, and uh, hangouts, <laughs> uh, you know, or like there, there are other options, but like it, it's, it's never perfect. And every, every time that that happens, it just is a reminder that I'm not there. Those are all solvable problems. But I think if we can figure out how to make remote work properly, we free ourselves from this crazy rat race for like real estate that's happening in every major city. We free ourselves from crazy commutes. We are able to, uh, you know, spend time with the people that we actually care about. Um, I also think that it makes meetings with your coworkers much more meaningful because mm-hmm. you don't take it for granted. And I, I want to continue finding out, you know, I, I'm not going to just give up on it because it's new and different and, and uncomfortable. So I'm pretty certain that any job that I take, even if it's in Vancouver, it would have to, any, any future job that I take would have to be pretty remote friendly um, and, and embrace, em, embrace that aspect. It's like, you know, if my parents got sick and I, I had to go back and take care of them, I wouldn't want to leave my job. I wouldn't want to take a two year break. That only increases the stress level, right? Like, yeah, totally. Or if, if I, if I have a, a, a child in the next few years, I don't, I don't want to completely stop being a, a designer to spend time with, you know, my, mm-hmm. my kids as they're growing up. And I think that in my younger days, in my earlier twenties, that wasn't really as much of a concern. I was just like work 16 hours a day, sleep on the couch at the office, wake up in the morning and just go back at it again, drink a ton of coffee, just had no respect for my body and health. And it was just all about the work. And and now I've kind of like leveled out a little bit. Um, so uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see where it goes, but. Well, I, this is a great segue into the last question we like to ask on the show, which is what keeps you up at night right now? Um, generally, if I have like a coffee afternoon, <laughs> it's, it's bad now. Very literal. Um, I, I always like to say like, I really like it when I have things that keep me up at night and wake me up in the morning because they kind of go hand in hand. Like you're, you're excited to get up in the morning and continue working on it. I think tooling is really exciting. I think being able to empower all different kinds of people to think and make creatively like designers do and like lower the bar of entry of having to like learn a ton of software, learn a ton of coding languages, being able to empower all kinds of people to solve the problems that they understand best is, is really exciting to me. So um, collaboration tools are, uh, are really fascinating to me because they allow you to, like I was saying earlier, like daisy chain your brain with other people and, and do more. It's not like a hostile thing. It's, I'm just excited about it. Um, yeah, it's some people interpret it as like what's going wrong, and some what people are like you. what's exciting. Yeah, so I'd say I'd say I, I have no problem sleeping at night. It's just more like I have a problem staying up, staying in bed uh, in the morning. Like I kind of just that wanna... is a great place to be, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, I don't know. It's been like amazing to be here too. Like I um, I just wrote my first Medium post uh, this week. It has been the five year anniversary since I first landed in SF and I was just sort of on the plane flying here and I was reflecting back on everything that's happened and it's been incredible. Uh, I feel like every single step uh, along the way, I just made a gut decision um, even though it didn't really make sense at the time. And I want to just continue doing that and uh, just seeing where that takes me. Yeah. Where can people follow along with what you're going to be working on? Um, so I'm going to try to get something up and running <laughs> by the time this airs, but basically I haven't updated my website in, uh, basically since I was looking for my first job out of school, um, <laughs> and I don't have any new work on there, but I've been trying to be more active on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I've committed to try to be more active with writing about my thoughts, um, on medium and, talking about other things on my YouTube channel. So Twitter, YouTube, Medium, and you can always go to pymerjabi.com, which hopefully in three days we'll actually have (laughs) some- Sorry for the pressure, but everyone that's listening later than Wednesday will get to- (laughs) Yeah, no, I'll uh, I'll have some. But basically like go to my my Twitter, Hmm. um, at pymerjabi, and uh, 
I'll have sweet snacks there for everyone. Links in the show notes, <laughs> snacks in the show notes. Thanks so much for hanging out, man. Thank you guys. It's been an Thank honor. You. It's been fun. That was episode 167. Thank you to Payam for coming and hanging out with us. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Brian for putting up with me. Thank you to Sarah for editing this. Thank you to John for making our table. Thank you to Sure for making our microphones. Thank you to you for putting up with us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, hit us up. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you need more podcasts for your ear brain balls. If you need more podcasts, that's a good word, Brian. If you need more podcasts for your ear brains, uh, you can hit up our ear website, spec.fm. We have more shows to help you level up uh, both design, development, and of course, before we go, please be sure to check out Wayno. They made this episode possible. Wayno is an agency doing amazing work with a team that we love. All they want you to do is check them out. Go to wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O.co. Of course, in our show notes, we'll have links to their Dribble, their Twitter, their Instagram. Go follow them. A hilarious and amazing group of people. Uh, if you want to work with them, they're hiring. Just go to wayno.co. Click the careers link in their header. Tell them we sent you. Uh, otherwise, and remember good. their tagline: "Don't be an idiot." Wayno. Wayno. Thanks again, Wayno, for making this episode possible. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.